Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 9.45 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 12.45 p.m. at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. Now that's only until October 14th when Beacon will be going mobile and we'll be meeting for worship on Sundays at the Viscardi Center at 9.30 a.m. and 11.30 a.m. The address is 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. One last thing. Beacon is now a non-for-profit. And if you shop Amazon, who doesn't? You can select Beacon Church of Long Island as a supporting organization, and a small portion of each purchase that you make will go to supporting the work at Beacon. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Clergy nearly kept me from being clergy. And if you have grown up in the local church and you uh, didn't have a spectacular experience with priests or pastors, then you understand what I'm talking about. I just couldn't see myself as a priest. I couldn't see myself as a pastor. And so it was years before I could really get to the place where I said, all right, I could, I could try that on for size. But it was a difficult transition for me because of all of the preconceived ideas uh, of what a priest or a pastor was really like. I mean, there had been one or two guys I really loved, and, and there was like a youth pastor that I remember and that kind of a thing, but mostly I was very skeptical. Then I started to realize that God had, in fact, designed me a certain way, and he had called me to do a certain thing. And when I began to live out that calling... I really heard, in a sense, not in, in audible voice or anything, but somewhere in my soul, I heard this, this call to go, and I said, yes. I said, I will go. And this whole series is called Go, and it's exploring your place in God's plan. Now, you might think of it simply as a, a singular focus on you, but in another sense, what we're really talking about is God's plan for humanity. What is the reason that we're here? It's a more existential way of thinking about it. But, but these are existential questions. There is a lot of hopelessness out in the world right now. People are giving up because they have not been able to find meaning in life. This is inevitably what happens when we disconnect our existence from our creator, when we try to live apart from God. This is what happens. I mean, we try to keep ourselves busy enough and keep our minds distracted enough, filled with all sorts of things so that we don't have to think about these sorts of things. That's the hope. That's the plan. Because we don't want to give it too much thought. It can drive us mad. How many of your friends are meandering through life, not knowing what it's all about. Most likely, it's most of them. No clue as to why they are here. You know, you might feel like all of the other rats 
are ahead of you in this race. Yes, that's exactly how it feels because we have bought into a lie. We're not even supposed to be running that race. Because God has infused purpose into your existence, a purpose that provides meaning and passion for this life and joy in the next life. And it's not your career, and it's not your popularity, it's not your hobbies or your achievements, it's not even your family that gives you meaning. Not even the accomplishments of your kids that you're trying to vicariously live through. What we did in this series when we started is we said, listen, God is on a mission. The missio Dei, the scholars call it. And it means that God has sent into the world a people to do the work that he has laid out before us. The missio Dei. And today what I want to do is I want to look at who God has called us to be. Trying to, to, to figure out who God has called us to be in this world. But in order to do that, we're going to have to spend a little bit of time getting to know Peter. So if you could open in a Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. As you open up, I want to ask a quick question for you because, you know, we're trying to figure out how many Bibles to bring to Viscardi. So how many of you just grabbed one of the Bibles that were in the seats here? Because, all right, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, all right, we need about 50. Um, because the first two services got to add them together, and that's about how many. So when you come in at Viscardi, there's going to be a little table there with a Bible. We're going to ask you to pick it up because there's no little racks underneath the seats over there. So make sure you uh, grab your Bible as you head in in two weeks. So who is this Peter character? 2,000 years ago, there's this guy named Peter. Now, today we call him St. Peter or the Apostle Peter. If you grew up Catholic like me, he's first Pope Peter, because, you know, that's a pretty significant thing. He's called the rock of the church. He's called the prince of the apostles. St. Peter's Basilica is named after him, and in the square there, called, by the way, St. Peter's Square, all named after this dude, is a 20-foot statue people from around the world have gone to see. There's actually another statue of Peter at St. Peter's. It's a bronze statue. And if you travel there, you'll see these incredibly long lines of people getting in front of this bronze statue because they, they all want to kind of go out there and, and, and touch his toes and, and kiss his toes. And if you can just imagine with me for a moment the germs that must be on those toes. I mean, so many millions of people around the world, they've worn the toes down with all of this touching and kissing. Ah. But here's the thing. Before Peter had such lofty titles, he was Simon. He was a normal guy who Jesus started calling Peter. He was a working stiff. His profession put him firmly in the middle class. He worked long hours, at a less than glamorous job. He's trying to make ends meet like most people in his day. He had little time for his family. No doubt his wife worked long, hard hours as well. And when he wasn't working, which was rare, by the way, 
He's hanging out with his friends, eating fish tacos and drinking kosher wine and trying to enjoy life in some way. Peter was coarse and rough, no doubt. But when time allowed, he had to wonder what God's plan was for his people who were sitting in oppression under the Romans, for himself, what future was there for his family and for his kids. I mean, have you ever wondered what God's plan is for you? Or does the busyness of life distract you too much from those kinds of thoughts? Peter always seemed to put his foot in his mouth. He also had a foul mouth, and he was often running at the mouth. So he got a lot of mouth issues going on with Peter. And have you ever had foot and mouth disease? I mean, have you ever said anything that you later regretted, wish you could take back, but of course couldn't because it was already out there? Peter disappointed his friends. He was a racist and an occasional sexist. And he was often very dense when it came to trying to understand deep and important spiritual truths. Have you ever not lived up to your own expectations? Because that's who Peter was. I mean, he talked a big game, but this is also the guy who denied and abandoned his friend and savior. Have you ever wished you could get a do-over when it comes to your relationship with God? That's who Peter was. I think we have a lot in common with Peter. And then everything began to change. His whole outlook, his whole perspective on himself and the world began to change. He was transformed through his time with Jesus from this normal guy wondering where he fit into God's plan to something very different. Peter became one of the most important figures in all of history. And now millions travel the world to weirdly kiss his bronze toe. Duh. What happened? How did everything change? And this Peter, he wrote a letter. This was 2,000 years ago, and it has been preserved throughout the ages for us to read an eyewitness account of what was happening during that period of time. And what Peter tells us is that there is hope for every one of us. Hope for everyone. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He said, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Peter found hope, and he knows that every single person needs to find hope as well. Look in verse 18. He says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. He's making this, this blanket statement that, listen, what you have believed since you were a child, what your parents told you and their parents told them, what your ancestors have told you is an empty way of life. Pursuing the things that you're pursuing and valuing the things that you're valuing, it's empty. Sure, you go through the motions. I mean, you have to go through the motions, right? You try to be a good friend. 
You try to be a reliable employee. You want to start a family, maybe, and you want to raise some kids, and then you hope later on in life that they come and visit you in the nursing home that they stuck you in at the you know, other side of town. Like that's, this, is the, this is what we're going through. That's the hope that we have. Peter's like, no, this is the empty way of life. Eventually, you're all going to die, and then what will it all mean? Look at verse 24. He says, all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. They're, the grass withers, and the flowers fall. It sounds like a existentialist, a nihilist. Because without God and without Christ, humanity has no hope. All of your glorious achievements, all the stuff you take such pride in that your kids are able to do, in the end, they're going to fade and disappear. Life has to be more than that. Has to be more. Many people don't even realize they need hope. It's not even a category that they're working on in their heads. And yet, the rise in suicide, in drug use, anxiety, massive distribution of medication, the angst that so many feel, it tells a different story. People don't even know what it is that they need because they're trapped within this empty way of life. The hope that Peter points to is salvation for anyone who desires it. And he tells us that salvation comes through Christ. Look back at verse 3. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in verse 9, he says, For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So you don't get salvation because you try really, really hard. And you don't get salvation because you think you're good enough. And you don't get salvation because you come out to church or even because you pray. You get salvation when you trust that what Peter said about Jesus is true. That he, in fact, has died for our sins. That he went to the cross in your place. And then he resurrected from the dead. And here's the kicker. Peter saw this with his own eyes. An eyewitness account. And when that happened, his whole life was turned around. Peter died. He was killed by the Romans. He was executed on a cross upside down crucified in one of the most painful, horrific ways in order to bring this message of hope to you and to me. There are different aspects to this whole salvation picture that he's talking about. Of course, there's salvation from hell going to heaven instead. He tells us that in verse 4. That means that our life doesn't end here on earth. It means that what we do here now matters for all of time. Imagine that for a moment. That what you do, every decision you make here, matters for eternity. That's what he tells us. 
But it's not just about eternity. We actually have a salvation that impacts us here. In verse 16, he says, be holy because I am holy. There's a consecration. Chris talked about this a couple weeks ago. There's a consecration that takes place where we actually see a salvation from our sin. It's another part of salvation. Yet there's another part. We're also saved from this meaningless life. Now it matters in a whole other way. Consider this for just, just a moment here. Peter is this normal dude, all right? That's it, just a normal guy, middle class, somewhat smelly fisherman, hanging out with a very large group of normal friends, just normal folks. His friends were in finance and in medicine, manufacturing, management, construction, agriculture. Some of them were great guys. You would have loved hanging out with them. And others, eh, not so much. The women, all sorts of normal backgrounds. Some were homemakers. Others were small business owners. Some had a kind of questionable sexual background. And others held very high positions in society. Others seemed to just be somehow independently wealthy. Peter took this, he looked out over this whole group and he started claiming some crazy things about himself and about all of them and by extension about all of us. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. He says, as you come to him, Jesus, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into this spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I wonder if the first time that Peter taught this, he looked out over this, this motley crew and he says, you guys are a holy priesthood. And they went, what? Are you kidding me? Me, a holy priest? You? I know you. Peter? <laughs> no, not, not possible. A holy priesthood? We know the priests. We know what they're like. We're not a holy priesthood. Peter wouldn't relent. Verse 9, he starts to pile on all of these titles as if to drive his point home. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now... You have received mercy. I mean, think about how unlikely this is, this ragtag group of people from every walk of life, this holy, royal priesthood. It's as if he's telling them, listen, you're not merely fishermen anymore. You're not merely financial advisors or CPAs or builders or architects or lawyers. You're not simply a stay-at-home mom or a plumber or an electrician or a fence builder or a computer tech, and you're not a nurse or a dentist or a doctor or a salesperson. No. That might be something that you do, but you are royal priests in God's kingdom. Now, to understand how category-busting this claim was, we need to dig into the history just a little bit here. In my reckoning and understanding of the scriptures, Adam and Eve were the very first of the priests. And then later on, we're introduced to this idea that all of the nation of Israel were to function as priests. But very quickly after that, 
the nation of Israel, through God's instruction, created a special class of people, the Levites and the priests. And these priests were a very unique group of people. And you really could think about it like this. There were two realms in their worldview. You've got the realm of God and the realm of humanity. And the realm of God was a sacred and a holy realm. And the realm of humanity, not so much. That was secular and that was profane. And never will the two meet. Because if you ever take the profane and introduce it into the holy, bad things happen to the profane. The purging purity of God's presence burns out the sin. And so this idea was these, these two realms never exist together. And then God called out this special group of people, the priests. And he said, wait, the priests are going to represent each of us to the other. The priests are a unique people. They're not quite profane and they're not fully holy but they stand somehow in the middle and so they represent the people to God and so they they bring offerings and they bring the sacrifices and they pray for the forgiveness of the people and they also represent God to the people because the people couldn't approach God's presence they had to stay a, a good distance away and so instead they would approach the priest and the priest you could tell they were different because they, they looked different. They had the cool outfits, dazzling white with the blue sashes. The high priest had this breastplate filled with these like jewels. So it was like a priceless garment that he was wearing. They got the cool hats because priests always get the cool hats. And so like, it, you know, this is what's going on. So you would see them. They, would, they smelled different. They acted different. Like everything about them was different because you would look at them and you would get a sense that something different, something sacred, something holy was beyond them. And in a way, these two spheres began to merge with the priests standing between humanity and God, standing between the people. The priests, of course, were a crazy, busy people because of this high calling. They did the ministry. They took care of the tabernacle in the temple. They set it up. They cleaned it. They repaired it. They played the instruments. They tended to the candles, meaning they turned the lights on and off. They offered the sacrifices. They managed the money. They prayed for themselves, and they prayed for the people, and they prayed for the world. The priests did the work of ministry until Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus comes on the scene and he tells us that the era of the formal priesthood is coming to a close. And within a few short decades, the temple had been destroyed by the Romans and the priesthood was obliterated. As if Jesus was underlining this great truth that we're going back to the original design where every single person who follows Jesus are now his priests in this great work. Now, this is startling because so many of the New Testament was, was written by Jewish people who had this deep-seated respect and awe of the priesthood. And did you know that none of the New Testament writers refer to the clergy as priests? It was a category they refused to use they would no longer refer to their leaders as unique priests. In fact, it was a hundred years 
before the church fathers started using any language that even appropriately, that came close to this idea. And even when they did it, they still referred to both the priest, the official clergy of a church, and the priesthood of every other believer. It was the medieval church that started this tragedy of separating the clergy from the laity, the clergy from the congregants, the clergy from the people who were in the seats. And once again, with different clothes and different titles and sacred spaces that only they could go to, they lied. And they told the people of God that they needed a priest to mediate between them and God. They told God's children that forgiveness and their magical incantations were the only way that they could get forgiveness. And that, was, that power was held in the hands of only a few select priests. This is a tragedy. The people followed their lead. And they lost their priestly calling. More and more Christians lost their calling for the common good of society and for the expansion of God's kingdom on earth. More and more let the clergy do the ministry while the congregations largely enjoyed the show on Sundays. In the 1500s, the Reformation attempted to restore this great doctrine. And the priesthood of all believers to this day continues to fight its way out of that darkness and back into the forefront. Restoring the ministry to the people of God, the priests of God. Because you are in fact, as a follower of Jesus, called to complete God's mission. Your role as a priest is a privileged role and it comes with great responsibility. We started this series, we said, listen, the church doesn't have a mission, the mission has a church. God called the church into existence to accomplish his mission. That's why we're here. And the church isn't about you. We the church are here to complete the mission. And any Christian who is not living out their priestly role in the world has rejected God's perfect plan for them. They have abandoned their purpose. No wonder the sense of meaninglessness has infected so many. You know, the nation of Israel had lots of people who were doing lots of stuff to accomplish God's mission. Of course, these were the priests. Someone oversaw the care of the poor and the sick, and they call them priests. We call them the care and compassion team. And they're amazing. Someone managed the contributions that came into the temple. Israel called them priests. We call them the ushers and the finance team and the ministry leadership team. Someone taught the people. They call them priests. We call them small group leaders and disciple makers and kids quest teachers and fusion student ministries folks. Someone organized the temple and made sure they didn't run out of anything like oil or bread or candles. They called them priests. We call them the back office team, the admin team, who comes in every week to make sure everything is working the way it ought to. Someone repaired the tabernacle and the temple. They called them priests. We call them the building and grounds team. Someone made sure the temple was ready for worship. Others played instruments, wrote music, taught the people the songs. They called them priests. We call them 
the tech team, the media team, the worship team. Did you know that in the wilderness, a group of people used to set up and break down the tabernacle as the people of God followed the spirit of God. And wherever he led, they went into the wilderness and they worshiped. And this group of people who did all the setup and all the breakdown, they called them priests. We call them roadies. And we did make them a really cool t-shirt. There's no jewels encrusted in it or anything like that. But the roadies do get a t-shirt. See, listen, there are opportunities at Beacon to begin living out your calling. And we want every single person to find their priestly calling. We want each and every one of you who calls Beacon your spiritual home to live out your priestly calling with your spiritual family and with your community and with the mission that God has given us Live out your priestly call, calling. Plug into the ministries. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not promising you that the world will build you a 20-foot statue. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure they're not going to make a bronze foot that millions are going to come and, and kiss your, your cool little bronze toe. But I am promising you something greater. That at the end of this earthly and short life that you will step into eternity you will stand before the creator of the universe and he will look at you and he'll say well done well done my good my faithful servant enter into the joy of your master you found your purpose you find your meaning there you find joy with him forever I'm going to ask the band to come up. They're going to lead us in a song, and we're just going to say a word of prayer for all of us here. Would you stand as I pray for us? Father, what we are hoping for is that you would stir up our hearts. It's so difficult for us to see what you desire of us, Lord, because we have been handed this empty way of life. And Father... Uh, what we need is an awakening of our soul, a new way of relating to you and the world around us, this high calling that is, that is ours as a gift. We don't see it in ourselves. We doubt it's true even. And yet you see it in us, and you've called it out of us, and you've promised that you would be with us in making this ever more real and powerful. I'm praying, Lord, that each person here would commit themselves to finding and living out their priestly role as they stand between you and the world, as they mediate your love and your grace and your forgiveness between a world that desperately needs it and a God that desperately loves them. May we fulfill your mission, your call. Amen.